You're listening to TIP. And so, yes, to your point, it affects things tremendously, not just on your loans too, though. Think about how credit scores can affect your insurance. We've had things affected at hospitals. So, I mean, people don't think about this, but hospitals want to make sure that you're financially stable because there's things there that have street value that you might have some fraud. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. David Toyo. David is the president and CEO of University Credit Union. He is a veteran in the financial services industry where he has served financial institutions in a multitude of roles. He is a constant advocate for the credit union movement to ensure access to financial services for all, as well as financial education that in tandem lead to members building financial mobility. During this episode, we chat about what is happening in the real estate market, how higher rates are affecting the banking industry overall, emerging trends within credit unions he's seeing, best practices you can use to ensure you have good credit, the adoption of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies within credit unions and local banks, and so much more. With that, I hope you enjoy today's discussion with Dr. David Tuyo. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink, and today I'm joined by David Tuyo. David, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. Now, David, you have extensive knowledge and background in the banking industry, specifically with credit unions. Could you talk to us about what's been happening with the real estate market? You know, everyone's talking about rising rates. This is going to impact monthly payments for people, especially, and you're in California. So you're kind of seeing maybe some of those bigger movements in the real estate market. So talk to us about what you're seeing overall with real estate. Yeah. So over the past year in the United States, we've seen the average home prices go from 320 plus thousand, called 326 to 375,000. So just in real estate values alone, you're seeing, you know, obviously tremendous jump in values. But then also taking into account, we've also seen mortgage rates go from 2.65, 2.85, depending on what time of the, the year you were lucky enough to lock in, to now today, where in some cases, depending on the structure alone, it might be mid five and a half percent. And so when you look at the cost of real estate and then the cost of the debt on the particular real estate taken on, you're not just going up by 320, 370,000, you're not going by 10, 15, 20% there. But then also you have the costs of debt increasing as well. So when you look at monthly payments, we're seeing some variations across the country compared to last year, where the monthly cost to the consumer, the borrower, the homeowner is now as much as 50% more expensive today than it was a year ago. And so obviously that's slowing things down. We're starting to see some inventories build. It's not much, but we are seeing a little bit more, right? We're going from seven days of inventory. Now we're going to 14 days of inventory. And so these are good things for the market. Hopefully we see a soft landing. Historically, we haven't seen that, but it would be nice to at least hope for it. We're very aware of where things are going. And some markets are still fairly valued. Some markets are overvalued. We look at from a real estate perspective, we try to track what the affordability index is. So obviously in, in California, where you see typically over time, higher salaries, higher wages, you see higher real estate values, but we look at the affordability index to try to figure out, is this overheated? Is it becoming a problem where real estate values are now out of reach based on people's incomes? And so of course, we've seen incomes rise historical levels, at least for my career over the past couple of years, average increases across the board of as a country, five and a half, five point six percent. But when you break it down by industry or by position, some are seeing, you know, eight, 10, 12% jumps year over year. And so obviously that is correlated with some huge increases in asset values uh, that we're seeing in the real estate market. So I'm not gonna be too much long-winded on this question. But again, uh, when it comes to the real estate market, it is a very complex answer because we're always looking at these ratios and comparative values, not just, oh hey, here this is what real estate's doing. It's interesting you mentioned that affordability index. You know, it makes sense you'd look at something like that. It's an index I haven't actually heard about. And I'm curious if the affordability piece is going to hurt, you know, a market like California with continued higher rates because for many people housing in that state is already out of reach. So if rates go up and payments are going up even more, is that market more susceptible to uh like a price shock, you know, some sort of drawdown or how do you think about those pricier markets? 
So typically you have seen greater volatility in these markets, right? The sand states in general. So that would be Florida, Arizona, California, California being very volatile. It really is depending and going back to affordability. If we see higher unemployment, which we're not seeing today, we have 11 million job openings. We have four and a half million people for those 11 million job openings. So until that gets right size, more balanced, we're probably going to continue to see some asset values continue to increase. Inflation still would be a, a bit of a problem. But for us, one of the tips or tricks I would recommend to the listeners is there's a new industry that's being created. It's bubbling up now. It's growing at a very rapid rate. It's just equity lending. And so what these new companies are doing, they're taking an equity position. So they're either do like down payment assistance. So traditionally, you know, you might do an 80-10-10 on a real estate mortgage. So you have 80% mortgage. 10% down payment and 10% piggyback home equity line of credit that then gets you into your house, you avoid PMI, those kinds of things. But what this new companies are doing is they'll actually give you the 10% down payment and then they take a 10% equity portion in the house. And then over a 15-year time frame for some companies, some companies is 10-year, they will have a callback. So if you sell the house and then they participate in the equity portion of the home. So if, if it goes up, they get 10% of whatever value goes up. If value goes down, they get 10% of whatever the value goes down. And of course, they have their own appraisal process and so on and so forth. I bring that up not to talk about that specifically, but when you look at the industry and you just pay attention to the websites, you pay attention to what markets they're in, it indicates what markets are going to be stable, what markets they find as attractive. And then when they're avoiding markets, it kind of gives you an idea of, hey, you know what? They're staying away from those markets. Maybe that's a good indication that that market's a bit overheated and maybe I should stay away from that market too. Or maybe you look at, you know, hey, there's going to be some volatility. You keep some dry powder back for an opportunity that might present itself in the future. So some pretty neat things out there, a tremendous amount more information than we've ever had in the real estate markets that I think is going to allow both the investor and the future homeowner or current homeowner to make better decisions, smarter decisions than in, in the past. Just hearing from the people I've been in contact with, it seems like today's real estate market really isn't comparable to what we saw in 08, 09. A lot has changed since then. Would you agree with that? And if so, why is it that today's market is just so much stronger and more robust than what we had then? Yeah, you know, many people are going to start twitching and, and have different body reactions after the Great Recession. It was a difficult time. It's probably the most difficult economic times I've ever seen in my career over 25 plus years, especially in the real estate market. It is very different than what we saw in the Great Recession as we were seeing today, mainly because of the fact that there were so many issues with underwriting, overextending the borrower. There were a lot of bad actors that were happening, a lot of fraud that was happening. You know, Back then, if you remember, we had the CISA loans and the Ninja loans, right? So the state income, state asset, the no income, no job, no asset type of loans where money was just being handed out left and right. And now through regulation, also just better practices because obviously businesses are incented to not lose money. And so whether it's banks or credit unions. And so I think that today's real estate market stands on much stronger foundation than ever before. If we see volatility, it's going to be minor. And the thing that concerns me most are these corporate investor pools. I don't think that the individual homeowner, the individual investor that has a few rental properties or is looking to invest in rental properties can be hurt. But I, I am concerned about how these new commercial pools uh, that we've never seen before that are buying up real estate across the United States. I'm curious about how that's going to affect things, both from a rental perspective, affordability perspective, and also how they can generate the returns going forward. And so, you know, are they over leveraged? What does that look like? And so these are things where it may not be directly involved with real estate financing or real estate, but it may be the adjacencies that we're unaware of that happening in the shadows right now that may cause problems for the real estate market going forward. I'm curious, how will rising rates affect the banking industry as a whole? I know many banks, they own mortgages, they own bonds on their balance sheets. So rising rates might not be great for that portfolio. But on the other hand, they can get more for their money when they lend out new loans. So I'm curious if rising rates will be a tailwind or a headwind for just the banking industry as a whole. So yes and no. Over the years, this is probably, when it comes to interest risk, it's probably the single risk that all banks, all credit unions are the most adept, the most successful at managing this particular point of risk. We've seen it for decades, mainly because of the savings and loan crisis back in the early 90s. This is why credit unions and banks are so good at, at interest risk management today. There is something that every financial institution looks at. It's called you know net interest income volatility. There's also something else called net economic value volatility. And what that basically is, net interest income is where you're just looking at what is, happens to your interest income in different scenarios 
up, down, 100, 200, 300, different types of twists in the, in the curve. So butterfly twists in as far as the term structure interest rates go. And so you see these things, whether it's you know, four different shapes you might run and, uh, and figure out, okay, look, if these happen, what are our plans to manage that? Yes, there's going to be pressure on earnings eventually. Right now, what you see is increases in the asset side of things and really no increase in the liability costs at this point in time, but that's going to happen. And so as deposit pressure and deposit pricing continues to become more competitive, that's when we'll see net interest margin compression at banks and credit unions. And that's when we'll start seeing some challenges about how are they going to scale? How are they going to be able to address those particular downfalls to their income? Do they just slow their growth? Maybe from an economic perspective, we see a slower growing economy. So then that matches where they're going to be at at that point in time. Net economic value, for those that don't know it, is, is a pretty simple concept. All we do is we take the present value of our liabilities and the present value of our assets, and we look at what the difference is. And that kind of gives you a net economic value. There's a tons of assumptions, and that's where the complexity comes in. But with that being said, we run these different models, and then we figure out, okay, look, from a long-term risk perspective, what is this change in interest rates going to do for us? And these different interest rate scenarios, how is it going to affect the value of our assets and liabilities on our balance sheet? And um, we're required to do fair value reporting every quarter. So then we have to uh, make sure we present that out there and, and show our members and uh, for the banks, their investors, what, what situation they're in. A lot of people will look at something called duration differential. And so I'm not going to get too nerdy on this, but the duration is not a measure of time as many people think. It is a measure of interest rate volatility. And so duration is nothing more than the first derivative of the price yield function, meaning that as you know, prices go up, yields go down. As yields go up, prices go down and vice versa. As you mentioned, bonds and fixed income is gonna, uh, instruments are going to be affected very heavily by rate volatility and duration is a great measure of that. There's a secondary measure called convexity. Convexity is the second derivative of the price yield function. Again, I'm not going to get too nerdy on this, but basically duration measures a small measures in volatility. Convexity then makes up the error term on larger measures of volatility. And so by putting those two measures together, you can get what kind of price volatility we can get on the balance sheet. So if you're holding a 30-year fixed rate mortgage, let's say, and rates go up 300 basis points, the value of that instrument, whether it be a mortgage or a bond, that value could go down depending on how it's structured, you know, 24%. That's significant. And so if the bank or crane has a need for liquidity and they need to sell assets, obviously that's going to put tremendous pressure on how to do that. And so there's other instruments that you can use to hedge that risk and, and a variety of things that probably be on the call. But with that being said, absolutely, rising rates will affect the balance sheet. It will affect the income state of banks and credit unions. However, keep in mind, heavily regulated, uh, both at the federal and state level. And this is a primary risk that everybody looks at, both internally and externally. And in my opinion, that's the single best managed risk of any financial institution has. In the previous question, you mentioned the increased level of commercial activity or just investors coming into the market. And I've seen headlines of things like state government in California getting involved with things like rent controls or rent limits on rent increases. So if more of the real estate market is owned by investors, that'll force people to need to have the rent if the new houses aren't being built to accommodate them. So I'm curious what you know sort of activity we might see from governments going forward if there's just an overall higher share of the market owned by these institutions or commercial investors. Yeah, no, it's a great point. And this is where when the government acts as a governing body, it can be tremendous in the impact in managing the overall economy. When the government acts as a solution, that's typically where we can have some, some situation because then if they're acting as a solution, who governs the governor, right? So that's kind of the issue here. And so our state has been tremendous over the past couple of years in the pandemic and working with all financial institutions to come up with you know, common solutions to the issues that we were facing from the pandemic. And I also saw that when I was in Florida as well. I mean, I, I can't speak enough about how our government has worked through the pandemic and even prior to that through other recessions and economic times, partnering with private industry to making sure that we have a stable environment. I think that one of the things was in the future, you're going to see a lot more migration. We're seeing it already at our company. Prior to the pandemic, we had 100% of our team members in California. Now we have close to half of our employees have moved or we've hired outside of California. We now have employees in 11 different states. It's very different for us, but the work from anywhere environment is also a big, I think a big boon for this question. Because when you start thinking about if we were all just concentrated in LA, yes, all those issues that you're bringing up would need to be solved. But now we're seeing you know, more of a I mean, I'd like to say global market. We're not quite there yet, but definitely from a coast to coast market where our team members can choose. Like one of my contacts and reps, and again, we pay very well. But it, you know, in LA, it would be challenging to become a homeowner. 
she said, you know, Hey, I want to move to Texas and can I go, I can buy a house there. And I'm like, absolutely. You're fantastic. If that's your best person in your life, we'd love to help you do that. And your position can easily work remote. And so she did that. She moved to Texas, bought a home, enjoying life. And uh, she sent us some pictures and talking about how she's enjoying and actually a very nice home, right? And in, in Texas. And, and so I think the work from anywhere environment is going to change that. We're seeing people figure out like, this is the best life for me. This is the kind of life I want to live. And maybe I don't get to you know go up the corporate ladder the way I want, but I'm gonna live my best life. And because I want to be on a farm in Wisconsin, or I want to be in Washington, DC, and or I want to be in Virginia, or our family has uh, concentrated and, and everybody's kind of relocating to central area. And so we want to be in that area, whether it's in Florida or, or Idaho or, or, or Oregon or whatever it might be. So um, when you look at, for us, just even an adjacent market in Vegas from LA, it's only a, a few hour drive. And you know it's a 58% reduction in cost of living. That's a significant, and we're still paying LA wages. So we're not reducing based on geography. We pay by the job. The job is the job. The job didn't change. I shouldn't lower your pay because you changed locations. And so, you know, we've seen a lot of people relocate to the Vegas area. I think Henderson, just outside of Vegas, has now become a, a little LA because there's been such migration. I believe the last debt I saw from the LA Times is something like 75% of the population in Henderson, Nevada came from California. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with, and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? a tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. Man, that's fascinating. And I love how so many companies have just changed their perspective, like a total 180 on remote work ever since COVID, because COVID kind of forced a lot of these companies' hands where they had to go remote for a certain period of time. And then they're like, okay, a lot of these roles, it makes sense that they can go remote. The employees are happier and you know the companies still get the work they need done. Yeah, I mean, we, we've seen our satisfaction levels jump. We're at nearly 90%. Some months we're at in the 90s as far as employee satisfaction goes. That's tremendous. I, the, the average in the industry, based on the, the surveys that we use, is 56%. And we always ran higher than that. We're in the you know, 60s, the 70s, sometimes in the 80s. But then when we went to WFA over the past couple of years, I mean, we're again, 89, 93, 92. It's every month there because people are happier, absolutely more productive. There's no doubt about that. And um, I think they're more appreciative to our business. We're seeing less turnover than other companies in our industry are seeing because we're so employee first, so employee focused, making sure that they have the tools and resources to be successful. But then also 
we want everyone to live their best life. And to be able to say that as uh, in leadership at our organization, it's a, it's a real blessing. And, and, and I can't say more about our board, our executive team that makes that happen each and every day. I'd like to chat with you a little bit about credit. One of the key aspects of getting a loan is having good enough credit to be able to qualify. And it seems like sometimes it's probably not talked about as much as it should be. What are some best practices or tips we should keep in mind to ensure that we have good credit? You know, as much education that's out there today, whether it's on your local financial institution's website, on our website, or just random Googling and YouTubing, there's still so much misinformation around credit scoring. And the worst thing I hear is, you know, typically I hear somebody, and these are well-educated people that are going out there and, oh, I heard of this, you know, cocktail party is what I should do. And so I did that. And it wasn't too long ago, I was talking to a member and she was in Washington, DC area, just outside DC. And she was trying to refinance her condo. Her credit score was just outside of where most institutions would underwrite. So sub 640. And so she was trying to get her credit score at the time was like 600. And so she was trying to get back up. And it wasn't a bad situation. It was just the way that the numbers are calculated. She wasn't getting credit for how she was really doing. She was actually doing very well, but it just how she was leveraging her credit and it made a difference in her scoring. And so we started talking. Then she starts telling me this, this whole story. And she said, well, I was at this cocktail party and this guy who was really smart in finance told me I need to go out there and raise my credit score just a couple of points. I just need to open up a bunch of uh, store credit cards and then spend some money, buy some new outfits, get some discounts. And then all of a sudden, I would have my score would jump and I would be able to refinance my condo. And so when I met her and we pulled her credit, do you want to take a guess what her credit score was? 480. 480 was the credit score and changed like 45, 43, something like that. And at that time, I, I couldn't believe it because she was not delinquent on anything. To have a score that low, typically you'd have to have charge-offs, delinquencies, and probably some judgments to get that. And what happened was she went that she opened up 18 store credit cards, all were like $300, $500 limits, maxed out every one of them. And now her credit score was diminished. So, you know, the, the five factors of the credit score that most lenders are going to use, okay, so 99% of lenders out there are going to use first one is going to be capacity, and right? that's like 35% of their credit score. Then there's going to be history, that's around 30% of their credit score. And then you're going to have length, which is the average time of your trade lines. And then you're going to have mix and a new credit. Right. And so your new credit is going to be what we call accumulation. So it's going to be inquiries and new accounts. And so obviously she was affecting her capacity because she maxed out her trade lines. She was affecting her new credit because she's out there opening a bunch of new trade lines that was affecting both inquiries and new accounts. Her payment history was good because she's making all of her payments. So that was better, but it wasn't long enough. But then this is a curious part. This is where a lot of people get it wrong. If you have one credit card that was 20 years old, and then you go out there and you open up a second trade account, your average length of credit now is no longer 20 years. Now it's 10. But what if you go out there and you open up nine new trade lines? Now you go from 20 years to two years. It's sniffling affecting your credit score. And so these are, these are things that, that we see all the time that happen with credit scores. And if I had any advice to give to anyone, it would be, if you have debt that's going to last longer than a month or three months, don't use a credit card because that affects your capacity. Your capacity is the percent available on your credit lines. So if you have an old credit card from 10 years ago, and you only have a $1,000 limit, get the limit increased. If you don't need it, get the limit increased, get higher limits. Because then when you do put $500 in that card, even if it's for a month or two months, you know what? Now, instead of it being 50% utilized, now it's only going to be 25% utilized. It's not going to affect your score as much. And then by taking your unsecured revolving debt, your credit card debt, and moving that to an installment loan, you automatically increase your capacity, which automatically jumps your credit score. So if you had a bunch of credit card debt, moved it to an installment loan, your credit score would go up immediately. Within 30 to 60 days, your credit score goes up. And then also at the same time, you're managing your debt better because typically a personal installment loan might be 24, 36, 48, or 60 months. Typically, that's all you ever see. And so the payment usually is going to be very close to what you make with your credit card. But the way that things are charged and the way that it revolves if you just make the minimum payment on the credit card, if you look at your statement on the back of the first page, you're going to see, oh my goodness, this is going to take me 36 years to pay this off, making the payment. It's going to take me 14 years. The average time, by the way, making minimum payment of credit cards, 19.2 years. That's 228 months. That's an amazing time. And we're talking about making a similar payment and getting out of debt in 48 months. You just do a simple math. Let's say the minimum payment was $100 and your loan payment was $100. You're going to save you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of $18,000 by moving into an installment loan versus keeping on credit cards. In addition, and I am, I'm using credit union rates at that point in time, but it would work with virtually anything. And then at the same time, your credit score goes up. So when your credit score goes up, and let's say you were you know, a tier two or tier three borrower, let's say you're in the 600s and now you move in the 700s, 
you're going to pay less. So you refinance that installment loan again. And now you go from a, a higher rate to much lower rate and you pay it off even faster. And so there's a tremendous amount of way of just being smart about how you utilize and manage your debt can make a huge difference both in your credit score and how much you pay. And these are simple things that everybody can do. And I would not get caught up in all the sophistication that could happen. Consumers need to understand you're running a balance sheet uh, based on a single source of income. And I see a lot of people try to manage their balance sheets at a consumer level, individual level, thinking about it, they do like corporate finance. Well, a corporation, we have thousands of sources of revenue, much different than an individual. And so I think you need to take that into account. Yes, risk tolerance is another piece you need to think about. But again, just taking these simple common sense approach to managing your debt will help you pay less and also increase your credit score. And I think that's a win-win across the board. You mentioned you know, someone taking out multiple credit cards to try and increase their score. Are there any other common mistakes or other misconceptions that people have in building good credit? Or is it as simple as making your payments on time and those other five categories you mentioned? Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, it used to be a lot of things have changed over time. So you need to update your thought process. In, in some of the old days, there was the idea of using an authorized user to help build credit that no longer applies the same way. There's some individuals that they're using family money to get loans and borrow. That's awesome. Obviously, very cost-effective. And I wish I had that choice when I was moving up through the ranks. But in this regard, I think you do need to get some form of credit. You got to get in the game some way. And then you have to. You don't have to always use it or leverage it, but you do have to make sure you have it available. So for instance, getting a, a credit card, start establishing credit, even with a small balance, put gas on it, pay it off every month. Don't let the balance get over you know, 30% of the available line. Those are common sense ways to get started. You're not going to get hurt. You're going to get gas either way, although the gas is much higher today than back then. But, and you get some rewards at the same time. I think those are kind of some, some common sense ways to get started. The biggest piece in my mind is making sure that you, if you have debt, don't leave it on a credit card. You know, And if you get in trouble, you lose your job or something, the, the lender wants to work with you. Every bank, every credit union wants to work with you. If you're going through tough times, everyone has a plan. Everyone has a department that is specialized. They go through special training certifications to help structure or restructure things that are happening to match what's happening in your life. So reach out. I know it's a difficult time, both emotionally, it affects our self-esteem, it affects our relationships. It's a horrible time. We understand that. Let us help you get through it. We can get through it together. Don't sit there and wait till things mount up to a point where you know other bad things have to happen, like going to court and those kinds of things. Just reach out. Your financial institution wants to work with you. We're trained to work with you. And that's really the secret sauce. You know, I mean, for our organization, people, when things are going well, no one really knows the power of our being a member of our shop. But when you are going through tough times, that's when we can really show you how we can help you. And, and we did that through the pandemic. We did that before the pandemic. And we're going to do that uh, with whatever our members are going to face going forward because often that's what we're here to do. I mean, we're just people helping people. I like to chat a little bit about getting a loan. In relation to credit scores, how does that affect the terms on a loan? Does credit score have a big impact on the interest rate that's offered or what sort of terms are offered or how does that work? I mean, when you look at whether it's secured or unsecured debt, it's going to affect the rate and it could be substantial. You know, when you look at somebody that has a high 700s or, or 800 credit score, they're going to be paying for their unsecured loan today, maybe 4.99, 5.99, depending on the institution. And you take somebody that is got very low credit in the 500s, low 500s, they're going to be paying 17.99. And in, in some cases, at some lenders, I've seen rates in the 100 percentile, right? So the payday lenders, those kinds of things, like 380%. And so, of course, some institutions like credit unions have a cap, they can't charge more than 18%. So, but then in that case, they might get turned down or they might just be limited in terms. To, so the second piece of that is, they might only, if you have a lower credit score, you might be limited to 12 or 24 months or a shorter term loan versus if you have a higher credit score, you can spread your payments off a longer term, you might be able to get a 36-month or 60-month loan. And so yes, to your point, it affects things tremendously, not just on your loans too, though. Think about how credit scores can affect your insurance. We've had things affected at hospitals. So I mean, people don't think about this, but hospitals want to make sure that you're financially stable because there's things there that have street value that you might have some fraud. It does happen from time to time. Also, we've seen that affect top secret clearances. We're in the military, they had their top secret clearance. All of a sudden, they started having some financial stress for a variety of different reasons and different scenarios that I can, that's very entertaining. That may be a different call for a different time. But with that being said, it affected their top secret clearance where they had to actually leave their position 
address their credit issues, and then they could go back and then get their top secret clearance restored. This is, it's much bigger than just lending when it comes to the credit score and it's affecting things throughout our lives. At our organization, any financial institution, if you want to work there, you have to be uh, insurable and bondable. And if you have a low credit score, you're not going to qualify in that bucket, in which case you're not going to be able to pursue your dreams, your aspirations, your passions around helping others in financial services. So, but again, there's tons of resources out there, whether it's online or whether it's working with a financial coach or someone at your local credit union or bank. There's, there's more resources than ever before to make sure that this you don't get in a bad situation. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. It's also fascinating to me. You know, you see increased technology, increased artificial intelligence and things like that. So it'll be interesting to see maybe how credit scores change over time, you know, how they're being calculated, how they're perceiving the risk. I think the possibilities are just like endless with where this could go and what makes someone actually credit worthy. I think the, the interesting thing, great point. I mean, we're actually leveraging four different AI tools today across our organization to speak to your point, looking at alternative data, looking at other ways, finding other ways that we can say yes, finding other ways that we can better understand and manage the risk and then help our, our member owners ultimately achieve their needs, wants, and desires. With that being said, we also, the, the tools haven't been around long enough to really go through a full economic cycle. So, you know, many times, like, oh, you know, we're working with AI partners, we're talking about different models and data points. But we just don't know how it really performs in a down market. And so they come to us like, oh, well, you get you know, a certain lift and a certain decrease in delinquencies, a certain decrease in charge-offs, and our models are doing this and yada, yada, yada. But I'm still very concerned about you know, how does these different data points perform in a down market. We know how they perform relative to the market, and they are an improvement. And the question is, what does it look like on the flip side? Understandably, predictably, looking at history, there's a lot of lookbacks. But again, we know that history doesn't necessarily repeat itself. It sure does rhyme. I am, I'm somewhat concerned. I'm not skeptical at all. I think the tools are fantastic, but I think we're going to have to make some adjustments to continue to fine tune these going forward. But to your point, it is going to increase tremendous amounts of access that haven't been before. It's the upper mobility and certain demographics and marginalized populations that, that credits have always done that others have avoided. Also, I think there's still bias, right? So we're seeing the bias happen with some of the AI tools because being programmed by individuals who led to the bias in the first place. And so, or whether it's cultural bias. And so these are things that are happening. And, and we saw that with various credit card providers that were out there where there was particular, in this case, it was gender, marginal uh, discrimination that was happening, disparate treatment, where somebody that came in and applied, it was a female. And somebody that came and applied, it was a male. The male would get approved and the female wasn't getting approved. That wasn't us. It was a different financial provider, somebody much larger than us. But I'm not going to say that we won't have those same issues, but we sure are looking at and measuring that. We're looking at the models, making sure that that doesn't happen on our watch, but again, learning from others. But I think there's going to be some fine tuning, but ultimately it is a great win for us across the board, whether it's our organization or industry or, or for uh, the consumer. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance 
with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Something that's bothered me is that someone with a W-2 job can oftentimes qualify for a loan much easier than someone who is self-employed. Even if it seems obvious that the person that's self-employed is more credit worthy, they might have all these assets on their balance sheet or they might you know, have a solid income stream. They just don't have the history of earning that income. My question is, will this ever change? I think for many lenders, it's already changed. For us, it's already changed. We actually partner with different fintechs to help aggregate and validate gig work. And so we wanted to not just look at self-employed because that we've kind of solved for that already. But you know, you look at some research, some research says that all jobs that exist today, 70% of them would be fully automated or gig work by 2030. And so we want to be ahead of that, that transition. And you know, when somebody says 2030, that means like 2025. And so we want to be ahead of the schedule there. And and so we're trying to figure this out. How do we validate gig work? How do we validate part-time work? There may be somebody that does 15 different jobs and does really well from a, a living perspective, but we can't really get that full picture. And so again, those are things that we're working to solve today and we're having some success already. But to your point, historically speaking, I have heard that before. I can tell you specific examples. There was someone that had a couple that we did the real estate loan for. I can be very specific about this one. She was a personal trainer, independent contractor. He had his own landscaping business. And let's just say the ratios didn't work out like a normal because they ran a lot of expenses to the business. The business covered a lot of different things that normal uh, and so you have to adjust your ratios. A lot of the rules that we have in place from a business logic perspective really does apply to more of the W-2 employee, to your point, than it does to the 1099 business owner, self-employed contractor. And so for us, we already made those adjustments. We were very aware of that. But yeah, historically, that person would have got turned down and it didn't look at the full picture and didn't understand the story. And so these are things where a lot of the tools that we have today make it easier to say yes to that individual, that type of worker than we've seen in the past, but still a lot of work to be done. The gig working perspective, I think is very exciting. You think about individuals that are working a full-time job or maybe a part-time job. They're doing Uber. They're doing a variety of other types of things. There's lots of crowdsourcing that's going on around programming. There's, you know, you can do some part-time programming, make a really good part-time income if you want to do that. And trying to capture, again, those sources are important and then actually have them validated as required if you're looking at a government program for a mortgage or something like that. There's certain requirements that have to be done. And so we're using these new tools that weren't available to us years ago to help make sure that individuals qualified for these various programs. Another question related to debt. I often struggle with the idea of, should I have zero debt or should I have any debt at all? Should I pay off my debt? I try and personally minimize the debt if I can, unless it's like a really low interest rate and you know, right now inflation's running hot. So it's it puts you in a pretty good position if you have a loan with a really low interest rate. With that, we live in a society that's just based on credit and based on debt. And you know, for the majority of people, debt's just a part of life. So I'm curious what your opinion is on how we can live a life with manageable debt. A lot of people talk about this whole concept of good debt, bad debt, smart debt, manageable debt. It's all debt. And I think that you have to look at what your goals are. You have to look at your risk tolerance is. You have to look at your source of income, the stability of the income. All these things play a role in how you should manage your debt. If your level of income is tremendously volatile and you don't have a source of savings as a rainy day fund, then you should have try to get your debt levels as low as you possibly can. If your risk tolerance and you lose sleep at night when you have debt, then you should pay it down as much as you can. Everybody's built differently. The answer is different for each individual. There is no one answer for everyone. And so for some individuals, I mean, even in my family, there's some individuals that are debt-free and there's some that are highly leveraged just based on their risk tolerance and what they're trying to accomplish. One's a small business owner. And so there's levels where there's periods of high debt and then there's periods of no debt. And so everybody's lifestyle is going to be a little bit different. But I will say 
you know, being smart about how you manage your debt, like we talked about earlier, is the best possible thing. Rates go down, refinance your debt. You know what I mean? Make sure that you make it as affordable as possible. Be responsible with your consumer finances. Be responsible with your business finances if you're a small business owner. Quantify everything. Understand your numbers. If you don't know the numbers, you don't know what's going on. And I would just stay focused on that piece of it. But I would stay away from this concept of, I only have mortgage debt because I get a tax deduction. It's always bothered me that people do that. This is a personal philosophy. There's nothing, no reflection in my company. But there are reasons why people have debt because they can't afford to pay cash for a house. Maybe they have different methodologies and perspectives. And that's awesome. There's diversity there, that cognitive diversity that everyone's right in their own position based on their risk tolerances and what they're trying to achieve in life. But to say that you're going to pay... I don't know, I'm making up numbers now, but let's say you're going to pay $20,000 in payments so you can get an $8,000 tax deduction. doesn't make a lot of sense. You know what I mean? Don't, don't, don't justify it because of that. There's debt. There's a reason for it. Now, as you get into later in life and we're going to start talking about retirement and those kinds of things, I would highly encourage individuals to look at you know, limiting their debt, even going to a zero debt proposition in retirement. It does lead to a much higher level of quality of life. We can talk about the financial metrics and how to use leverage and those kinds of things. But when you're retired and you have, you're living off sources of savings, you're living off sources of pension or other types of income that you have coming in, not having that debt does increase your quality of life to be able to have the freedom to go do what you want and not have to worry about, oh, well, if something goes down in the market or something else, I'm not going to have money to make my payment. Instead, you're thinking about, okay, well, look, instead of some volatility in my savings account and my retirement fund, okay, look, maybe instead of not worrying about my house payment, I'm worried about, Okay, look, maybe I'm going to change from going out to eat at Ruth's Chris to saying, okay, look, I'm going to go have a habit burger and a shake instead. So these are just kind of things that, that I would urge as you get later into the cycle, um, what you might look at and plan for that. You've worked with credit unions for many years. And earlier, you mentioned how your company's adapted to the trend of remote work. So I'm curious, are there any ways that you're seeing businesses, banks, or credit unions in general evolve with you know the ever-changing world we live in, rising rates, millennials coming in to be the top home buyers now, which is probably a much different consumer than what you saw when you first entered the industry. So what are your general thoughts on some things credit unions are doing in a changing industry? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really point. Banks and, and, and credit is a really exciting time to be at. It's an exciting time to work and be in this space, either directly or indirectly from a, a supplier, partner, fintech or directly with a bank or credit. It's probably one of the most exciting times next to the Great Recession. The Great Recession was, again, a horrible time, but also a great time to be in this business from an education perspective, growth perspective, and understanding what, you know, the business. If you think about millennials, I mean, the turning 42, right? I mean, this year. And so now we have millions. They're not, I mean, people still say millennials, they think about you know, you know, somebody that's in their 20s living at home. No, that's not the case at all. It's cliches are horrible. I mean, I think half of my leadership team, my executive team uh, qualify as millennials. And then you start looking at you know, the average home buyer in California with our high home prices is 47. So millennials are, are approaching that age. They're going to be dominant in the real estate space amongst other things. And you start thinking about you know, with the generation after them, right? You have you know, we get talking about Gen Z at this point, and sure, I'm not sure what the next generation is going to be after that. But a lot of different things that are happening across the board with the work from anywhere environment. We're fortunate enough the way that we're built to be able to be in a WFA world. Many other banks and credit unions are taking a different approach. We have seen friends of mine; they're going to in competitors. They're going to hybrid approaches where they're spending hey, three days in, two days out. Some are doing rotations where like half the team comes in two days, the other half the team takes two days, and then. And then everybody's remote uh, one day a week. And so a variety of different things that are going on. We've been looking at this market since before the pandemic. So we were looking at this strategy. And back then, we were working from a white paper that was generated from Deloitte around... Back then, it was called distributed workforce. You know, Some banks are going full back in person. And I don't think that's a bad solution either. Everybody's going to have a different model. And it's going to give individuals the choice. How do you want to work? Work from anywhere is not for everyone. You know, working from anywhere takes a lot of discipline. You know this. You know, it takes a lot of discipline. You have to have, you know, certain types of management, certain types of leadership in place. But for the right organization, culturally, it can be tremendous. But then for others, you know, having that in-person collaboration, there's just certain things about these ad hoc meetings and hallway conversations that happen. Whereas if you work remote, you have to figure out how to generate that kind of random or spontaneous interaction that would happen. People are gonna have a choice. Just depending on, on the individual, I think most companies are going to get there eventually, even as some start to pivot back to hybrid, some are going back full-time. 
but again, it's great that we're going to have choices. And, and I think it can be a better time if you're getting the workforce, you're joining a bank or credit union, you can choose to be a programmer from home, or you can be a programmer in the office and work from a skyscraper, whatever your, your preference is. We cover Bitcoin quite a bit on the show, and it's gradually made its way into the financial industry. In 2017, to pick on Jamie Dimon, he called it a fraud. He's the CEO of JP Morgan. And now I just recently saw a headline from JP Morgan that they're bullish on Bitcoin and you know, giving clients access to invest in it. So I'm curious what you're seeing in the industry for local banks. Is it something they're interested in or is it something that many are just kind of taking a wait and see type approach? You know, it's interesting in today's world, we spend a lot of time on these sound bites and marketing narratives. And, you know, we all know that our attention span now is whatever, six seconds, right? We have to get people's attention in six seconds or less. And to your point about Jamie Dimon, by the way, huge fan of his. I think he's done an amazing job. Love the story from back in the day at Bank One and moving on. But Bitcoin is interesting. You know, we obviously there's seven over 17,000 coins. Last count, I had like 17,800 or something. So just a tremendous amount of opportunity out there. We're seeing community banks and credit unions across the country get involved in the space. Going back to my comment about these sound bites, I just think it's a little shallow uh, as far as how we're getting into the space. Many are only looking at just buying and selling you know, one or two coins is all they're really opening up. And then obviously being able to the advantage, the value proposition, of course, is the ease of moving back and forth, of course, from fiat to crypto and back and forth in a very safe way with your financial institution, which is great. However, there's a tremendous opportunity, in my opinion, to be able to get involved in the space and have uh, and support cross-wallet transactions, where coins back and forth, but then also transactions, also lending, also opportunities, in my opinion, around staking, facilitating the staking of the crypto. And so a variety of ways that we can get involved. We haven't gotten to that point. I can tell you, our organization will have a solution live within the next six to 12 months, probably closer to six. Very excited. It's going to do exactly what I just described. But I think it's something that, that we're bullish on too. I think crypto is here to stay. I don't know how large it's going to get. Originally, I thought that the we started seeing this central bank digital currency start to come up and this conversation start to come up. And I was, like, I was kind of worried about how that would affect Bitcoin. How would that affect uh, the crypto industry in general? Not just Bitcoin, of course, you know, the 17,000 plus coins that are out there today. And my concerns shifted. I thought it was going to be good for banks and bad for the crypto industry. And I think it's actually vice versa. I think it's going to be bad for banks and good for crypto. And it's a couple different reasons why. I don't think the central bank is going to come out with the digital currency anytime soon. But right now, it's being set up where it's a liability of the Federal Reserve. And so it's on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. So if that deposit of crypto is now at the Federal Reserve, and it's not at the bank or the credit union, what funds is the bank or credit union going to use for lending? And so if the deposits go down, lending activity will go down, economic activity will go down, the money multiplier goes down, all these things affect our economy across the board. And so that problem is going to have to be solved for. I, I think it has to be a way where the digital currency resides at the institution level and not at the Federal Reserve. So that way, we still can have the economy uh, based on its tenants today without affecting you know, things negatively that I talked about and then facilitating this move into a digital currency. Some things that concern me. But again, because of that, you still have this at the Federal Reserve level, this still can't get around the anonymity. There's still going to be the requirements of the Patriot Act. We have anti-money laundering, Bank Secrecy Act, those kinds of things are starting to kick in. And so I think this is going to be, which would be good for crypto, right? So it's still, still very positive on that side of things. But, but I think banks and credits do have a role to play. I think crypto lending has tremendous opportunity, especially for individuals that have appreciated large amounts of coin where they're sitting on a massive gain that would be a, a significant tax consequence. You know, Having that as collateral to lend on to buy other things where they don't have to sell and take that consequence of the taxes, that tax liability that exists is a tremendous opportunity. And it's something that we're looking at and we'll be leaning into over the next few months. Very interesting. The cryptocurrency side, I've seen both ends of it. Like I've seen some smaller local banks start to offer just custody services. You can just buy Bitcoin or Ethereum through them and they'll custody it for you. You know, many people that might not be as tech savvy, I can see definitely the use case for that. They're not comfortable going out and setting up their own account with, they have to figure out which exchange or broker they want to go to. So it's just much easier to just do it with your local bank. You know, they already have your money in your checking account and you can just easily transfer that over. But then I've seen the other side of the coin where you know other smaller banks are just like, yeah, we're out of this for now. But you know, if it becomes a bigger part of the economy, then we'll happily maybe be a latecomer. Again, just like everything else, as a heavily regulated entity, we have not been given permission to enter into the space directly. And so everything that we do, we have to go through a third party 
because the regulator is not allowing us to participate in the market directly. And so that is a big piece of this. Also to your point, some friends of mine, they're like, well, if you don't own the keys, you know, talking about custody of the bank and the bank having the keys, then you don't own the coin, right? That's the big thing. You don't own the keys, you don't own the coin. Well, that, you know, again, to your point, there are certain people based on risk tolerances, based on knowledge, based on time, you know, they don't want to have to manage across, you know, do I have the token via the USB fob? And if I lose that, I lose all my coin. If I don't remember my passphrase, and I'm gonna lose my coin and it's lost forever. And now I have people that are trying to hack and find these lost coins that are out there. And whereas if it's custody, it's at your bank or credit union, it's not going to happen. And so there's definitely a use case for it for some. And there'll be some that just say, hey, you know what, I'm, I want to be on my own. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this direct. And that's great too. That's, that's part of what makes this great. Again, I think we're looking at, last I heard, I believe the number is only 25% of Americans have bought, sold, or transacted in crypto. And so there's still a tremendous upside here. There's obviously a reason why 75% of Americans haven't gotten into the space. And you know, if that means that going through a financial institution opens up and increases use, if we increase use, we increase liquidity, we increase liquidity, we increase the safety, if we increase the safety against higher adoption rates, there's a better opportunity in this space. So and it's probably what Jamie Dimon's thinking too. I'm guessing uh, him and I don't talk much, <laughs> but you know, if he ever calls me, I'd love to have a conversation. But in the meantime, I, you know, I like to see how uh, I agree with his flip on this uh, particular topic. Awesome. Well, David, I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm really glad you took the time to share just so much knowledge with our audience over the past hour. Before I close out the episode, I want to give you the opportunity to give any closing thoughts and let the audience know where they can get connected with you. Yeah. I mean, obviously I'm on LinkedIn. Please feel free to reach out. Love to learn more about you and and help and support uh, your endeavors any way possible. Also, our credit union is University Credit Union. You can find us at ucu.org, ucu.org. It's probably the best way to get us. And again, lots of knowledge out there, lots of opportunity to learn. You know, make sure you know your numbers, make sure you know and understand everything before you move forward. And university is here to help any way possible. But again, I appreciate the opportunity to be here today. Awesome conversation and um, really was an honor to be part of this. Awesome. Thank you so much, David. Have a good day. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review on the podcast app you're on. This will really help us in the search algorithm so others can discover the show as well. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources, as well as our TIP finance tool that Robert and I use to manage our own stock portfolios. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.